to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Welcome to episode 77 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Dave Morrow. Dave is a retired Canadian Armed Forces Infantry Officer and did one operational tour in Afghanistan during 2010-2011. He is also a former high school teacher, which is how we first met, and recently, well not so recently now, but recently completed his Master's in Education Leadership where he researched high school concussion management programs. He now runs his own personal training business tailored for military, police, and EMS professionals. He's played zero games of rugby in his life, uh, is a good mate of mine, <laughs> and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. So welcome, Dave. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. This is, uh, this is round two. We, uh, we tried one in my basement with a, with a few, uh, few beers as well, but uh, the audio uh, didn't work out. We'll blame, it, blame the audio, not, not, the, not the beers. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that, that's if Let's that's the line right. we're going with. Sounds and good. you, you got your your six month old daughter in the background there, Olivia. So that's right. That's right. We're here. doing we're doing this in tandem. She's going to take a few questions for me. So if that's all right with you <laughs> yeah. guys, this is pure podcast dad life we're yeah, doing right absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally. Um, all right. So as I mentioned in the intro, you, you didn't grow up in a rugby background. Uh, what 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 was your childhood like? What kind of what kind of sports were you into? Uh, what, what kind of activities did you get up to? Yeah, right. Um, well, let's uh, let's just clear something up with the rugby. I did go to one practice. Yeah. In grade yeah, in grade yeah. seven, so when I was uh, thirteen years old. So yeah. to say I have no experience, I don't know. It's kind of rough. It's yeah, kind of right rough. Up, I, right, I, I, ne- I never right follow through. Okay. I never follow through. <laughs> uh, I, I like my football a little bit uh, too much to uh, to give that up for rugby. But yeah. um, needless to say, it's been one of those things that I, I wish I had kept on doing in my uh, folly of my youth i think i uh, i went down the the more common path which was uh football and uh that was uh you know yield rugby was definitely not nearly as popular as as it is now uh, and it's definitely something that i think i'm gonna i'm gonna get my kid to uh to do uh with the uh, the junior uh, rugby that you got going on in, kids, uh, in the west right? island kids you've got yeah. a daughter too and it's, it's blowing yeah. up women's rugby so i know Olivia i know starts and, uh, asap Absolutely. So yeah, I'm definitely keen on getting them uh, involved in that. And uh, I mean, uh, we touched base earlier on just the concussion stuff with respects to uh, football and what I what I looked in uh, through my master's research. So um, I'm more inclined to uh, to have my kids do rugby. But uh, yeah, just to touch on my, uh, I guess my athletic background, the best way I could describe it is uh, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'd never had a sport that I was truly good at. I was just generally okay. And the thing is I could usually pick something up pretty quickly, but then I just, the nature of who I am, I tend to get bored with things. So then I'd be like, Oh, let's try this instead. And so to give you an idea, you know, I, I played hockey. I always wanted to be on the Montreal Canadians for all you uh, listeners out there. That's uh, the best 
team to ever exist uh, in the world of hockey and NHL. <laughs> um, nobody's even come close to him. I understand the Cups, no big deal. But um, besides that, um, you know, I play basketball. Um, I guess the sport I was best at was swimming, to be honest. But mm. that one didn't even that didn't fire up my engine because it wasn't a team sport. Yeah. Like I get to yeah. hang out in the pool, but. You know, uh, I used to do the um, IM relays, which was great because I could uh, swim butterfly, which a lot of guys couldn't. Mm. And uh, so I did okay there, but I didn't pursue it. Um, you know, I became really into running, um, especially after I joined the military. So I like doing, um, you know, I guess medium distance runs with, uh, you know, half marathons and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, geez, Sounds horrible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like that's that's kind of like my habit. <laughs> yeah. I love going on those runs. Yeah. And uh, like I said, football. I played up until uh, CJEP. Yep. So that's until I was what, like 18, 19 years old, mm-hmm. and uh, that wasn't going anywhere. I uh, rode the pine more than I ever got on the field. So I was like, I think I'm done. And yeah. uh, from there, really, the the only thing I really excelled at, I guess, athletically, was uh, all these things put together. I guess all came to like a head when I joined the military because. Yeah. That's where my generalist approach was uh, best suited. Yeah, and, uh, for you know, sure. I was, I, I was an infantry, you know, I, I made up to, you know, infantry senior non-commissioned members. So I was a sergeant at one point. And uh, that, you know, preparedness, I guess, or that preparation, all my athletic career was, was really beneficial um, going into that kind of role because you need to be able to run, jump, be powerful, be strong, have endurance, um, all that good stuff, mm. but you don't have to be like a lights out athlete mm. to be able to do it. Yeah. All right. So let's get into that a bit. How, how did you end up in the, in the Canadian military and you know, what were those first kind of few weeks, months like when you, when you first got involved? Well, how did I get in? Um, being 19, um, there's not much that motivates a 19 year old, um, man, more than um, shooting guns, looking cool, and picking up chicks. <laughs> so uh, the great the career choices there. Nice to that. Uh, yeah, the the whole idea of like serving my country was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah, I'll serve my country. I'll sign in that dotted line. Like, well, let's uh, let's go shoot some guns, and then um, hopefully I'll be cool enough to to get a girlfriend out of this. But uh, you know what? It turned into one of those things that uh, man, I, I thoroughly loved it. And it was, you know, my first, my first time being in an environment that was very challenging and very demanding. I, mm. I never, like I said, I never was a, a high caliber athlete. So, you know, I can only pretend to understand what their uh, training regimes and stuff are like. But, um, for me, the military was that big kind of shot in the arm that was like, all right, this is hard, but you can do it. And you're actually doing really well at it. So that's you know, week one was, uh, I remember I called my mother, um, because we were on base. And, um, so I, I gave her a shout just to tell her what was up. And this is anybody that's under the age of like 30, I guess right now, like there was no cell phones at the time. Like they weren't a thing unless you were a drug dealer, you didn't have a cell phone. So, um, <laughs> I was on the pay phone and I remember I was just, uh, I, I remember telling my mom and I was swearing too. I never swore at my mom. She was like, Oh, you're swearing a lot. So like I, I had absorbed the culture almost immediately. And I told her like, I, I love this shit. Like this is, this is where I want to be. And she's like, Oh, that's nice. And so, you know, 15 years later, you know, my, my military career kind of, um, was relatively long, um, so to speak. 
but it was just something that I always look for. And that, that challenging environment was uh, something that I guess my, my, my mind and my body was looking for, for a long time, having not played like very competitive elite sports. So that was kind of like my, uh, my time in the big leagues. Yeah, cool. And it didn't take you long to move up the ranks. Uh, you, you mentioned you, you're an officer uh, at the end of your, your army career. What was that process like? in terms of going up the ranks and what, what specific training was involved in that to prepare you? Yeah. So the, the system is there's, there's kind of two, um, two streams. You have the non-commissioned stream, which technically you don't, it's like the, it's like the grunts, right? So the guys that don't need education, you're, you're the infantry soldiers that are uh, doing the bulk of the work on the ground. Um, and then you have the officer stream, which they're the, the planners and the, the ones that, um, make the strategic vision moving forward. So, um, I mean, you still have just as much work to do as an officer, uh, but you're kind of taking like a, a bird's eye view from like 50,000 feet to see like the, the battle space. So you need to have a bit more insight and cunning into what you're doing. So I played both roles. I started out as a non-commissioned member and so worked my way up, uh, you know, as a private all the way up to um, a senior non-commissioned member, which is a, a sergeant in the Canadian Armed Forces. And that was, um, that took me six years. So it wasn't exceptionally fast. It was just mm. a natural progression for somebody that wanted to move up um, through the ranks. And uh, the the process was, you know, for me, I didn't know anything else. So I was like, all right, this is just the way it goes. So essentially you just get, you sit, you get spotted early on. And leadership is so important within the military. It is constantly reinforced because you always need to fill gaps of leadership. Um, mm-hmm. And just just the idea of having a job that your superior could get killed and you have to fill in, the, fill in that gap is not something that companies have. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the emphasis on leadership is so, so, so important because you need to be able to do two jobs up is what they always say. So, you know, if you're like a private, you should be able to do um, what's called a section commander's job. So that's basically what a sergeant does. He takes care of about 10 guys. Um, You know, could you fill that role? And if you can, great. If you can't, well, you better learn fast. So um, that was how I got started. You just, you just fill gaps. You know, I'm, I'm a young 20 year old, uh, you know, taking care of a, section of 10 guys at one point that are older than me have more experience than me and you know we're in charge of making sure guys don't get shot on a freaking exercise with like live ammunition so Mm. you you learn to accept responsibility really quickly and rise to the occasion so you know in that six-year period you do leadership courses which are just brutal um there are (laughs) you know days days in the field um so you're 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 humping around like the the woods of Petawawa um, and you've got, you know, a ton of weight on your back, you're wet, you're tired. And then on top of that, you got to think and give orders and execute plans and make sure your guys are checked out and make sure that everything's uh, working as smoothly as it can um, with no sleep. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a real proving ground. Not many people get to experience that, but it definitely puts you in a different mindset because you realize that you can push yourself to another level mm. that you, you just, an athlete will never put himself in like five days of sleep deprivation and then go and play a game. That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Your performance mm. is garbage. But for the, the infantry, especially the idea is that they want you to be in a, such a deficit and still be able to perform at a high level because 
you need to be able to that's the reality and withstand the stress and it's the, it's the artificial stress of combat so that you don't break um mm-hmm. and that's that's a valuable valuable lesson and then after that like I, I went and deployed to afghanistan and then i came home and then i did another leadership course which was to become an officer which was even worse because i was old i was in my thirties. <laughs> <laughs> like you can do all kinds of dumb shit when you're a kid and you know your knee miraculously doesn't feel awful after you twist it you know 20 minutes later but when you're 30 and you do it all of a sudden it's, you know, Advils and going to see the doc and wondering, like, are you going to be able to get through the next day just because your body's not as resilient as it was mm. when you're a kid. So that, that's the, that was kind of the main difference between the, the two streams. Well, you, you perfectly, you've been perfectly trained for parenthood then with the, the, the five days of sleep deprivation. Uh, this is the parent, parenting's a breeze of young kids now. Oh man. I, and I tell my wife too, I'm like, because yeah, I get it. Like it's hard sleep deprivation, you know, when you don't have consistent sleep, mm. but if you're not, and if you're not used to it, it just wreaks havoc on your, your, just everything about what you're trying to do. And then you have to go to work after, forget about it. But for me, I'm like, well, I'm not wet. I'm in, I'm inside. <laughs> Glass half full. Yeah. Nobody's <laughs> yelling at me. I can, go to the, I can go to the fridge and eat whenever I want. I'm all right. <laughs> but that's the, the difference in mindset when you yeah. go through something that's just awful yeah. and like, you know, nothing's chafing on my body. I I, I don't have sores. Like it's there's no mosquitoes on my Ticks. face. I'm like yeah. everything's a check in the box. I'm like, man, I'm just tired. Awesome. <laughs> That's it. Good. Carry on. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. I uh, just just from what you're saying there earlier, I, I really like the concept of two jobs up, uh, being able to perform two jobs up and and to to fulfill the turnover for whatever reason. So I think that resonates. I just got off a call before we chat and. Um, just about some local coach development and how there is just such a massive dearth of coaches in our community here where, where we're based, but, but you know, that's not, I think that's a global thing too, but that concept of two jobs up could be applied in terms of coach development with regards to, okay, you're a player today, but guess what? Tomorrow you're coaching this part of the session uh, because you never know. Coach might not show up and who's going to lead the show? It's going to be you. So let's get planning and uh, let's let's start practicing some, some basic coaching pedagogy and, you know, to prepare for the inevitable, which is you're going to lose a coach one day and we need to ful- fulfill that void as a cup, as a club. Yeah, absolutely. And what I've found, I guess, with my brief time working in um, private in the private sector is that that's not something that's instilled because that's the that that concept's like, oh, I'm training somebody to take my job. I don't want that. Mm. Why would I want somebody that could do my job? I want to be the only one that can do my job because I want to I want I want to provide for my family. I want. So the idea of the the organization taking up greater importance than the individual, Mm. that's that's Army 101. That's military 101. Mm. We're not out there for our individual needs we're out there for the collective so like a team like a rugby team same idea the mm. collective is more important than the individual mm. so if you if yeah that culture is instilled in a team yeah i mean the sky's the limit at that point yeah well speaking of teams you're you're eventually deployed to afghanistan and, and led a team over there how did that team develop and what what were some of the lessons you learned uh from from that process that, that you feel could be applied to to coaching and and leadership Right. Um, well, I think my daughter's going to take this one, <laughs> but, uh, so here's the, here's the, the, the good and the bad about, um, what happened is I was training a team to go over, um, mm. and deploy. The unfortunate thing is right before we're about to deploy, 
everything changed. And they said, oh, yeah, sorry, your team no longer going with you. You're going on your own and they're going to be punted to somebody else. So with that, uh, I was kind of, you know, in a, in a place where I was like, well, that kind of sucks because I put a lot of time and effort. Um, it was a small team. The idea was that they're going to be um, I was going to have a driver uh, for one of our vehicles and um, a gunner. Uh, so on the machine gun. And then, you know, myself, which was like the quote unquote operator that was going to be doing and conducting meetings. And uh, my job was essentially to uh, bring stability to my area of operations. So um, I had to have somebody basically like watching my six o'clock while I'm like talking to locals. So uh, so that a I don't get like uh, an axe to my head or somebody comes around and like ambushes me. Now, the idea also is like I'm, I'm going out with a, like an armed section of, of guys as well, but I would have my own team. But then all of a sudden I was stripped away. So the lead up to that was essentially, you know, I've, I've been practicing leadership for about a decade up until that point. But then it was, okay, this is for real now. This leadership and that I'm, you know, practicing in this, that I'm implementing for these, you know, young privates and they're, you know, very young private and corporal, um, at the time. So they're, they don't have as much experience as I do. And I haven't been deployed to Afghanistan. Neither of these guys have deployed to Afghanistan either. So I need to be the guy that is showing the example because we're going overseas to an environment that we don't know and we don't have any experience. Mm. So we're going to have to do a lot of prep to make sure that we're actually ready to go and any eventuality comes up, we're ready for it. So the, the one interesting thing, this is probably, uh, I guess the best example is that, um, because I deployed here in Quebec, I was attached with the, um, French battalion of the Royal 22nd regiment called the Van Dues. Everything is French and mm. growing up here in Montreal, like I'm bilingual, but my French was like I call ghetto West Island French. Like mm. it was, it was not up to, up to scratch, but I had to work every day to get my French a lot better. The, the soldiers that were going to be in my charge, 100% French, like their, their English was very poor. And the reason why that's important is because we knew we were going to be deployed with Americans mm. and in the eventuality that you need to get on the radio and you need to, um, you know, call in reports. Um, you, you need to be able to communicate and if you don't speak English, that's going to be a serious problem. Mm-hmm. So I made that what I call a standard operating procedure is that uh, we had to do basically a uh, joke of the day. Mm. So just to break the ice, because the guys were really nervous to speak to me in English. Yeah, yeah. And I also I also want to show the example. I'm like, OK, I'm only going to speak to you guys in French and we're going to have this two way. But you have to make me laugh every day with a good joke. So that that I that concept of like let's just make it fun, make it um, enjoyable, but also there's a there's a direct purpose for this. It's mm. that you may you may need to call in something, mm. and you, this might save somebody's life. So there was a seriousness attached to it as well. Mm. Um, so that was great because you know what the guys loved it, and we still kind of chat about it. Uh, you know, and they throw a joke to me every now and then. Like um, they're all <laughs> do, they're great. all doing their own things, but that was that was kind of like one of those really salient points that, um, you know, in any organization, if you're a leader, how do you get, how do you get a point across that, you know, there's a seriousness to it? Cause I could have easily said like, all right, guys, I want you to learn English and I want you like writing papers. I want you to like, just talk to me like you would like any other day, but you know, not make it enjoyable, not make it yeah. fun. 
they wouldn't, super wouldn't top have, down as well. Yeah, exactly. Super top down. I'm controlling it. Um, so that's always been kind of like my leadership style is like to find a way to actually make it enjoyable, but to also have uh, the intent there, which is obviously to learn better English, but to also make sure that operationally we're, we're, we're better off. And, you know, that was the, you know, the other, the other things that are included are also, you know, being physically fit, monitoring that and just building rapport. Um, if you don't build that rapport, man, it, it, it's going to be, it's, it's hard to lead men on the ground if you don't have rapport and you don't have trust. So yeah. if you get those main components settled and that's at the front end, you got to make, you got to put the time in, you got to put the effort in, you got to go for drinks with the boys. You got to work out with the boys. And I say boys because, you know, I, I, there were females in the, in the organization, but I was working with, you know, the boys like the, but you know, it doesn't matter. Like mm. you got to put the time in with whatever team you have and make sure that they know that you actually give a shit. And that's, that's basically what it came down to. Yeah. It's uh this resonates a lot to uh, me, one of my, one of my former guests, uh, Ben Darwin, he's a former, um, national player for Australia. Um, he, he studies a lot, uh, about, uh, team cohesion and how the most cohesive teams, they may not be the most skilled teams, but the most cohesive teams are usually the most successful teams. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of that cohesion shows up in, in defense when they're, when they're actually got their backs to the wall and they have to go in hard and they have to you know, fight for each other. And so, so what you're saying there, you're, you're talking about defense in like, this is real life. This is like, they're the, the, the consequences here are, uh, potential death. So, so that, that cohesion sounds like it was a, a major part. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, like if you don't have, co- it all comes like, at the end of the day, it all comes down to cohesion. Um, and that's like, we're going to talk about soft skills, that's the value of a leader, in my opinion. Um, mm. you, could, you could have all the skill sets, all the hard skills in the world, but if you don't have the ability to get your point across so that your team actually wants to do mm. what you're setting them out to do willingly and then contribute and make it better, yeah, yeah I mean, you're, you're not going to go as far as you'd like, um, and that's the unfortunate reality. And it, the other thing too that I learned over years is that one style doesn't fit every team. Absolutely, and yeah. you know, like I'm, I'm sure you've you, you've had that too with your your different teams. Like year to year, your dynamic changes. And if you mm. always keep one style as your coaching style, that may end up being detrimental because you know the hard ass can get results usually up front. And I see it. You know, mm. to harken back to to hockey. Um, you know, you see it with certain coaches, like uh, there's a guy uh, in the NHL, his name's Tortorella. Tortorella, yeah, I was yeah, trying to no, say that. Tor- yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a hard ass. He comes yeah. in on teams that are having trouble and mm. he just smashes guys. Like he calls them names. And for some guys that fires them up and that gets them playing better. It's got a it's shelf like, oh, life. Though. It's got a shelf life. Right. Exactly. Because resentment sets in mm. and you're not going to get the results that you want. So same thing in an army team. It's the exact same. There's a lot of guys that come in and they smash away. And it doesn't get them the results that they want long term because the guys tune out and they get bitter and they get resentful. And it's just it's it's unfortunate when it happens, but it is something to happen. A lot of times the army actually wants that. They like the guy that comes in and is loud and is aggressive. Mm-hmm. And then the, the higher ups are like, see, that yeah, sergeant is on leadership. the ball. He knows, yeah. he knows what it's, it's called. We call it loudership. Yeah, right? <laughs> loudership. I love it. <laughs> I never I, I never was a loud guy. So mm. I remember I started out. I was I was a loudership guy because that's how I was taught. Like that's mm. those are the guys I saw. I'm like, these guys are getting results. They're the loud guys. But every time I heard myself, 
I'm like, man, this is really disingenuous. Like, I, I think I'm mm. yelling for the sake of yelling. I'm not angry, so I'm raising my voice. So I, I just became more true to who I am, which mm. was tone it down, talk in a normal voice. Mm. Um, if you have a point to make, make it to, you know, the individual outside of the team. Never humiliate anybody mm. publicly because mm. you'll lose them for the rest of their career. They'll think you're a piece of shit. And, um, just make sure that you're, you're deliberate. And, uh, one comment, I remember I heard, uh, one of my troops say, um, years ago, uh, and they, I guess they didn't think they didn't, they didn't know I was around or whatever, but I overheard them. They're like, oh yeah, don't, don't, don't worry about, uh, Sergeant Morrow. He won't yell at you, but he'll, he'll pull you over to the side if there's something wrong and, and, and let you know what's what. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's <it>. nice. <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah, that's good. Uh, good lessons there too, for sure. So somewhere in all this, you also managed to uh, become a teacher and fit that in. Um, what, what, um, you know, from your from your teaching career, what, what are some of the things that you you feel you've learned in terms of uh, you know from your your coaching that you're doing now with your personal fitness and and leadership uh, that are that are transferable. Um. Yeah. I mean, being a teacher was. I'm, I'm, I still am. It's something that has always mm. been part of who I am. I, I, you know, conveying a message and doing it in a fun way or, or, and then eventually seeing somebody actually like the light bulb turn on. Mm. That's always been my thing. That's like yeah. my jam. I love that. Yeah. And that's why I've never really left the, the teaching space. Although I'm not physically in a school anymore. I'm still doing this with respect to, you know, what I'm doing in my coaching business, because mm-hmm. that's what a coach is, right? Yeah, a coach exactly. is just, yeah, you're, you're essentially a mentor. you I mean, it's, it's not, it's not fixed in the same way as a school, but the same, um, the same basic rules apply. Um, and you know, being a good leader and a good teacher, you can be a good teacher, but not necessarily be a good leader. Um, and vice versa, you can be a great leader, but not be a great teacher. Um, being able to combine them both, um, you know, my teaching experience has definitely helped me a lot mm. in my leadership abilities, just because, um, understanding kind of like how to progress through like a, a learning arc. Um, especially if you have a group of people for a longer period of time, like where do you want them to go? How do you want them to get there? And what are the individual pieces in order to make sure that you can, um, monitor that and make mm-hmm. sure that they're actually progressing. That's something that really valuable that I took away from teaching. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to get up in front of a group of people and in, you know, a teaching case in a high school, you know, 12 year olds and try to like, if you, if you can handle, uh, 32, 12 year olds and actually, uh, teach and not lose your mind, man, you know what? Like that good on you. Like I had a really hard time doing that. Um, so the, the job is, is super demanding. Um, just because you have so much on your plate for a 50 to uh, hour long window Mm. and you have to come in, you know, on some days, like I'm sure, like, as you know, you show up and you're like, man, I'm not nearly as prepared as I should be mm. because that's just life. Mm. And you realize you're like, ah, oh, this is, this is awful. I can't let this happen again. And so that builds in a kind of discipline that mm-hmm. so what you're doing, um, you know, in my case, you know, building programs and getting on a call and making sure that like I'm well prepared for that individual. That's something that is really um, played into what I do now, which is make sure the plan is, is well set. Make sure that when you enter into something, it's not um, shot from the hip and uh, make sure that you monitor uh, progress and, and constantly be able to um, 
change at, on the fly if necessary and make adjustments and corrections on the spot so that there's no latency between, um, you know, something that is done improperly, in my case, like a movement pattern um, and the actual correction to make sure it's, it's done in a short enough window that we can correct it and start moving forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, teaching in that sense was, has been super, super, super important for my leadership ability, but also just what I do now as a, as a fitness coach as well. Yeah, for sure. No, I, every day I'd like for me, teaching makes me a better coach and coaching makes me a better teacher. Um, it's, they're just, everything just goes hand in hand and, you know, the experience you get in the classroom, you can apply directly to If I could just add something, if mm-hmm. I could just add something to it, sure. I, was having, I was having this conversation with somebody not too long ago about, so what's it like now? Like I'm out of the teaching environment, uh, the, the, the school environment. And I said, you know what? I think if I were to go back, I'm a much better teacher now. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because I, I've now opened up just Pandora's box of what's available mm-hmm. for instructional purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know why I wasn't doing it when I was actually in the classroom. You know, YouTube videos, um, just classroom management stuff, um, group calls, like all these things. Mm. You know, there's so many different elements that you can add in now with technology. And, you know, I, I do a lot of micro lessons now. Um, I, you know, and I, I feel that, yeah, I'm working with obviously adults, mm. but I, I, I'm sure the same value is there for um, kids uh, that would really uh, benefit from, you know, different modes of communicating a message. So I, I do think I've become a better teacher in, in conveying a message and just doing a podcast and all this stuff has really helped with just the way I speak and the way I think and the way I, pre- I present myself. So, um, you know, if I ever were to go back in the classroom, I think I'd be much better um, at uh, at getting results and, and getting kids um, from point A to point B. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially not just teaching but, but coaching. I think uh, we can we can be guilty as teachers and coaches to once we get that degree or we get that coaching certification that that we stop moving. Uh, we, we can't stop moving. We have to keep developing and keep, keep growing. And whether that be through formal uh, continuous professional development or informal like you're talking about where it's a, it's a chat over a coffee or a Skype conversation or you're, you're running a podcast or you're listening to a podcast or you know anything of that nature, you, you need to keep ticking away because once you stagnate, uh, you, you, the, the, the pilot light can go out on, on how, much, how much joy you can get from your, your day-to-day tasks. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, I'm totally tracking on that 100%. Yeah, cool. And you, you also, uh, when, when we were working together at the same school, you were also uh, doing your master's in education leadership and you researched high school concussion management. Uh, can you tell us like, just, just broadly what that project was about and how, how you rolled that out? Yeah, sure. Um, that was based on me seeing a bunch of students, but my students, walking around the school with sunglasses on. Mm. And I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And so I just asked around, like, is that because of concussions? Yeah, sir, it's because I have concussions. So I was like, okay, cool. I didn't know any of the research other than, um, you know, there's a lot of talk in the NFL about um, CTE. Um, so the, you know, incidence of concussions and the, the awareness of concussions was going up. So I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. 
And then the next question was, okay, well, how come kids that are in my class that have sunglasses on? I don't get like a formal kind of report because I don't really know what's going on. What do I have to do with these guys? And so I get kind of um, piecemeal information from students, from the administration. So there was an inconsistency there. So I decided, well, I need to come up with a, a project idea for my my master's. Um, so therefore I decided let's make it about designing a proper protocol for the school. Um, so that's kind of how I got involved in the whole concussion space. And I have to tell you, like it was, it was really eye opening. I was super passionate about getting into the research and it was just, um, it was eye opening because we're, we're kind of at the tip of the iceberg Mm. and, um, especially in Quebec, we're a bit behind, um, not only Canada, but also the Americans, the Americans are, are doing a lot of good work there. Um, some of the main things that, uh, really stood out, uh, if we're just talking about, uh, you know, getting kids and I'm, I'm going to say kids. So anything under, let's say 14, um, the, the main issue is that a concussion that, uh, is, you know, brought on, or if a kid uh, suffers a concussion under that like 14 year old, uh, window, the odds of them having long-term cognitive, um, depreciation in their, their ability is, is significantly increased. So we're talking about, um, they did a study about, uh, in the States about GPA and, um, kids that had a concussion before the age of 14, Ten all had well had a significant chance that they would have a lower GPA on average than somebody who didn't. And I was like, oh wow, that's pretty serious. So uh, it got even worse if you had multiple concussions before age fourteen. Now, mm-hmm. the reason for that uh, mechanism is not entirely clear, but it seems like because the brain is still developing, yeah, those concussions and essentially a concussion. Like you have to have that. It's called a coup contre coup. So basically, uh, like a, a, it's a rotational force applied to the brain that um, ends up causing the concussion. So you know, con- like a lot of people would would assume, like, oh, taking a like a really hard hit to the head, like to the side of your head, will cause a concussion. Well, odds are no. Like if you take a baseball bat to the head, you probably it won't get a concussion. It's when your head slams onto the ground and then snaps mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. Or you take a really hard hit in rugby and, you know, you get that, that head that snaps back. That's, that's where you get that whip action going that causes the concussion. And essentially it's your, your, now your, your cells, uh, your neurons in your brain that are now leaking out, uh, electrolytes. So Mm -hmm. it's that inability now to process that is causing the cognitive dysfunction. Now most heal up within seven days completely and don't have any symptoms. But if you're in that like window of under 14 years old, it's, it can be pretty serious. And if you don't have a proper protocol in place, this was the major findings that if you don't have a proper protocol in place, which diminishes the stress of the student through ensuring that they know they're going to be followed and Mm. they don't have to do their schoolwork and they can catch up and there's going to be no penalties significantly increases their ability to heal 100%. And 90% of those kids within that seven days will heal up. Mm. The remainder will take anywhere up to two months for some of them at the, at the, at the wow. farthest end. Mm. Um, so the important thing is that you have somebody in your school that can actually manage that. And uh, some of the schools in the States are, are, are adopting the uh, CTL model, which is a concussion, concussion team leader model, um, which is the model I proposed, where you have a member of your staff. And ideally, it's a it's a nurse or an athletic therapist that is outside of the actual teaching organization or the administration. Mm-hmm. And what they would do is any any time a student would get a concussion in or outside of school, 
they would be the main point of contact and they would contact the parents and they would monitor um, the students as they move through their concussion protocol. So um, it's basically a school-wide campaign to ensure that your students, if you, especially if you have a very active sports program, to ensure that their health is put at you know the highest level and that there's no risk, or at least you mitigate the risk of long-term cognitive disabilities. So mm-hmm. um, you know that included things like you know doing sensibilization. Uh, I shouldn't say that's a French word, but doing sensitivity training um, at the beginning of the year for coaches, staff, and teachers. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't take long. It takes maybe like 30 minutes. 40 minutes and then all the sports teams just to have uh, their coaches really on point as to how how to look for concussions and mm-hmm. how to have a safe environment for concussions to be reported because a lot of times uh, athletes don't want to report them because they want to be on the field and they want to play so if they understand that this might be detrimental to their health long term and the parents understand that as well um, that whole system is, it's, it's not the easiest to implement because there's a lot of cultural, um, I, or I should say inertia in a lot of schools to implement something new and especially hire on somebody that would be taking care of the students long-term. A lot of schools, especially, especially public schools don't have the budget to do that. So, yeah. um, where, where do they go from here? Um, there, there is legislation now in Quebec. Um, that's, they're not quite at Rowan's law, which is the, mm. the law in Ontario. Um, to ensure that uh, concussions are taken a bit more seriously. But um, it's slowly starting to change. And um, with respect to that, uh, my, my research has been brought up to um, uh, the provincial government here. And uh, they're looking at uh, tabling it and adding it to another bill that they're, um, they're considering. So there is movement here, uh, which is good. But there's definitely a lot that can be done. And just to add just one more point to finish up on uh, this whole research side of thing, concussions and neck strength are directly correlated. Mm, So for a young, a young athlete, um, especially, you know, under the age of 14, getting those necks strong should be a prerequisite for any contact sport. Mm -hmm. If they don't Mm -hmm. have, and I I don't know the number off the top of my head, but all you need is a simple dynamometer that you have in your physics class and a headband that's made out of Velcro and anybody can do the test. So you're, you're, you're basically doing a side to side and a front back assessment Mm -hmm. of, of neck strength. And if they don't meet the minimum requirements, they don't get on the ice or they don't, you know, get on the wrestling mats or they don't get on the, the field for contact until they have that neck strong enough. So that yeah. that has a significant impact by re- in reducing concussions because having that strong neck re- prevents that whipping action. Yeah, and that probably adds a bit of support to uh, the concept of age banding in rugby where it's like you're, you're actually on your biological age compared to your actual chronological age we probably need to look at where you are physically and who you should be playing with, especially when we get to or when we get to the contact parts of the game. Yeah, no, it's um, you know, obviously a really important area, especially in the context of rugby um, or any contact sport. Um, yeah, and you did bring up uh, Rowan's Law. So for the listeners outside of Canada, um, Rowan Stringer was a uh, high school rugby player. She she died on the field in 2013 from um, second impact syndrome, and that um, from that tragedy, um, some some really really strong legislation um, has come out from the Ontario government uh, in terms of um, responsibility of coaches, responsibility of schools. Um, the the uh, Rugby Canada has like really really led the charge here, and they've they've got some really gold standard um, concussion protocols around um, 
you know, with the with the saying like when in doubt, sit them out. So if at any stage you you feel that a a player is is not not looking right, you saw a hit, you think, oh wait a minute, that, that looked a bit rough. Just take them off the field. It's it's just not worth it. It's it's a game that everyone's going to forget about in two weeks' time. Uh, but this is someone's life that you're 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 dealing with. That's in your hands, especially as coaches. So you know, can't we can't stress it enough. Can't talk about it enough on this program for sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, that's you know you can. You don't have to have any kind of fancy training to just have a feeling, right? Mm. You see, you see a, one of your athletes taking a, a pretty brutal hit. There's no harm in saying, "Hey, look, I know you might feel fine, but why don't we just sit you out for this mm. one?" You, there's plenty of more games, and if you're gr- if you're good to go after you get checked out, awesome. Just to be a little bit more vigilant um, and not worry about you know the score on the field and like the championship so much as mm. you know this this kid's potential to actually be great academically, you know for the rest of his life that's that's kind of the the attitude um that would mo- be most beneficial to the to the athlete yeah. and they're they're a student as well so you got to keep that in mind and i tell you what too usually your gut instincts are right on this i've i've taken kids out of of you know the final match of the season we're trying to play for a championship and i've i've taken kids out because i thought they worked and cast and it, well, I'd say on 100% of the times they, they work and cast and it was the right decision. I think there's a really important uh, distinction to make there too that um, we don't, in, in grassroots rugby, we don't have uh, the trained medical staff to do head injury assessments um, where the professionals do, where they, if there's a suspected uh, concussion, they get taken off the field, they get assessed. If they pass that assessment, they get back on. Um, as grassroots coaches, we don't have those those tools, those facilities. Even if you do, and you should always have a physiotherapist or athletic therapist on the field, they don't have the skills or training to do that. So if you feel someone's concussed or is potentially concussed, when in doubt, sit them out, and, and that's them done for the day, uh, and, you, and you follow up uh, through the, the protocols post-match after that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like having you know the the professional in the field obviously i think you you have to have uh at least an athletic therapist uh per game mm-hmm. currently right here yeah in yep, definitely right um but you don't need one for practice if, if i'm no that's correct, right, right yeah yeah um so and that was an interesting little thing too like when you're running contact practices who then mm. now looks after your your athlete because mm-hmm. a lot of those concussions actually happen during practice because you're going full speed you want to make sure you're game ready um so that's that's especially in a school setting how do you how do you mitigate that well mm. the coaches are the f- first line so it's really important that you know they have the ability to to ad- address that and when in doubt sit them out is is, mm. is a perfect example of that and uh, you just don't want the kids at the end of the day um, missing out on their long-term success because mm. they got, you know, their, you know, quote unquote bell rung too many times and nobody took action. Um, mm. and that's, that, that's the, that's the important part of be, being a coach. Yeah. Um, it's not just about winning. It's about making sure that these kids are, are good to go for the rest of their lives and confident and actually capable of doing what they want to do later on down yeah. the road. Yeah. And it's incumbent of provincial and national bodies also to provide that coach education around, building up to safe contact and i know there's been some good stuff here uh locally so um we don't have those situations where where kids are thrown into contact situations where they're just not prepared they're not ready 
Um, so that's really important. Okay, um, moving on now. Um, you've moved into personal training now uh, with your own business, Dave Morrow Personal Training, and you've where through that you've created the Hard to Kill Training Program. Uh, you've also got your own podcast too. Great idea. Um, can you can you tell us a bit about um, this this uh, this new new career that you 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 you're paving out and and who are the people you're working with in this area? Yeah, sure. So this was something that I was slowly putting together, I guess, for the last like seven years or so, and um, it finally took form, I guess, about a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was honestly I had one kind of client on the back burner for a few years and on again and off again. And it was just a side hustle while I was teaching. And, uh, the idea was I wanted to provide quality personal training online to members of the forces, um, especially here in Montreal, because I got injured in Afghanistan in 2010. I, uh, herniated my back and I messed up my knee a little bit. And when I came home, I, I was just, I was like incapacitated. I, I just assumed I was good. I was like, ah, whatever, I'm young. I'm going to suck it up and take pills. But it came to a point where, you know, I was missing like a week of work. I couldn't take care of my family anymore. And I, I realized I, I couldn't go on like this. Like it was, it was untenable. So I said, okay, from now on, I'm going to figure out why I'm banged up. Cause I got, I got released from the military because of my injuries. And, um, it was unfortunate cause I really enjoyed the military. And, um, I worked with a coach for about two years and, uh, after working with a coach for about two years, I came up with basically my, my program. And, um, so then I started implementing it with some of the guys because all the same issues keep on cropping up. It's back injuries, knee injuries, hip problems. Mm. And the reason for that is that we do runs, we do pushups, we do sit-ups and the guys that are doing it. And I was one of them. I wasn't a personal trainer. I was just experienced enough from my own personal experiences to do some stuff. But was I doing them right? Was I doing the periodization right? Was I making sure that the guy's movement patterns were right? No, I had no idea. And this is endemic in the mil- in the military, and there's nobody there that's really fixing it. Mm-hmm. So you end up with every year there's about um, four thousand medical re- uh, medical releases ish. Wow. Uh, what's well, sorry since that 4,000 releases and about 1600 of them are medical releases. Right. Um, the overwhelming majority of them are musculoskeletal and the rest are psychological. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we get that number down? We're not going to get it down to nothing. We're going to, but how do we get it down? And this is a conversation I had with, uh, with Kelly Stray. You had him on your podcast as well. Yeah. Um, Legend. And yeah, exactly. It was, you know, how do we get our warfighters fighting better? And that was my initial thought. Like, how do we get guys fighting better and staying in the fight longer? And so my initial, uh, my, my initial revelation was that, well, I don't even know how to move properly. You know, like, I don't know how to do a squat properly. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do a hinge properly. I don't know how to press over my head properly. Everything was wrong. Everything was broken. So I just took years to fix that. And I use Kelly Sturette's um, Mobility Watt as a, as a great reference. His mm-hmm. books obviously were awesome. You were the guy that actually, yeah. yeah, you were actually the guy that put me in touch with him. Right. Well, in the sense that I, I wasn't tracking him. Like, yeah, I, I, yeah. I didn't know what was going on. like, yeah, check this out, mate. And I was like, okay, cool. And uh, <laughs> I didn't sound like that. I didn't, I didn't want to do my shitty Aussie accent for your listeners. I didn't want to embarrass myself. Um, 
So with that being said, I, um, I, I basically changed everything that I did. Um, and that was through movement. And so I just wanted to make sure that my clients got the same benefit so that they could stay in longer. So I work with, you know, uh, veterans that are like myself, you know, um, they're usually retired. They're probably out because they have a musculoskeletal injury, usually a back problem. And we just build basically through what I've experienced, I've gone through a program that can actually benefit them to move better so they can do stuff for their family and stuff like that. But then I also have, you know, the other stream, which is the the younger guys that are looking, yeah, that are really hard charging that want to get to another level, especially if they want to go, you know, to the special forces world, which is not easy to get into. Mm -hmm. You need to be an elite level athlete to get there. How do we do it? Well, you know, we, we look at again, movement patterns again, and then how do we do things with, uh, you know, a lot of load, but also a lot of volume, mm, uh, build that motor. So, so I can both, that, yeah, exactly. Build that, that whole motor and those three energy, uh, systems as best as possible before they go. So, um, yeah, it's been really, it's, uh, I, I've never really wanted to work with anybody else. I, for a brief time, I was like, Oh, I want to work with CEOs. I don't <laughs> know any CEOs. I don't know what they want. I was just, at one point I was like, well, how do I make money out of this? Oh, I know. I'll show CEOs how to like do pushups. No, I'm like that's not that's not the that's not my tribe. I, well, I your, like your wife's the CEO of your household, though. So you know why? <laughs> yeah. She's uh, she's what I call niner domestic. Niner in, on in, on the net in the military is your is your is your commander. So niner <laughs> domestic is uh, is the wife on the on the yeah. nets. Yeah, cool. All right, that sounds awesome, and I'll, I'll put all the links up in the in the show notes. So if people want to go check out uh, your pod and your 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 page, your Facebook page, you're pretty prolific there, doing some good stuff on Facebook Live and uh, throwing out some freebies every now and then too, which is great. So yeah, it's been awesome having you on the show. We all, we always end the show with the same final four questions. I'll I'll do it in a more general sporting. Um, context rather than uh solely rugby so when you were a kid growing up first question who who was uh one of the athletes that you you idolized as a kid oh man kirk muller captain kirk was (laughs) and still is my boyhood idol so he hasn't aged a day you watch him on the bench he's like he's 20 looks 20 I think he, he, he got to like age 30 in his twenties and then he's just kept it stable. He's like, he's, he's always been that solid grinder. He was the last Montreal Canadians captain to win the Stanley cup. Mm-hmm. He's just all around awesome dude. And I have like a binder full of his stuff of his hockey cards. Cause I just collected everyone I could possibly get my hands on because he was, if I was to be in the NHL. I'm like, that's the guy I want to be. He's humble, but he puts the puck in the net. He gets dirty in the corners. Like he was just, he was always back on defense. You you couldn't have a better hockey player on your team. And he's the one that held the team together really. And got us our last Stanley cup in 1993. I can't believe it was 26 years ago, but, um, he's, yeah, he's always been my, my, not just my hockey idol, but just my, my professional sports idol for a very long time. And, and yeah. I got to meet him on the, I was coming home from a, a night class and I got to meet him randomly. Uh, he was coming out of one of the hotels, downtown Montreal. And I recognized him right away. I was like, Oh, and I got that like butterflies in my stomach. It's like, <laughs> if I was, if I was like a 14 year old girl seeing Justin Bieber, I think that was the same, same reaction. <laughs> and I went up to him all nervous. I was like, yeah. Oh, Mr. Muller. Uh, he's like, Oh, Hey man, how, how you doing? And he put his phone away and he shook my hand and we had a conversation for like five minutes about That's like sick. what I was doing. But I totally came off as a fanboy, like yeah. for sure. But it was, it was a great experience. I called my dad right away. I'm like, Oh my God, you know what you're talking about? 
That's awesome. Cool. And what about now? Who are some of the athletes you like uh, watching do their thing? Well, uh, yeah, this is actually good timing. This is a few days before the Super Bowl. And uh, I'm not a massive football fan anymore. I've kind of fallen out with football. But the Kansas City Chiefs have Laurent Duvernay-Tardif on the team. He's a, uh, he's a McGill grad, yeah. McGill alma mater, go Redmond. Oh, actually, I don't know if I can say that anymore. But anyways, go Redmond for the time being. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, um, yeah, he was uh, you know Canadian all-star football player, got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. And is the first ever NFL football player to uh, be a doctor. He finished his med school at McGill while being a starting guard for the Kansas City Chiefs. So, and he's a giant. Um, essentially, the reason why I like him is because he's just an all-around awesome dude. Not only is he a hyper high achiever, he also has his own charities in Kansas City. Um, he's going back to school again. Um, he he's just he's a no quit, no bullshit and just overall great human being that I think is like, I'm I'm just ridiculously impressed by high achievers like him, but to be humble about it too. Mm. Um, and just amazing at like not only getting into the NFL uh, is an incredible achievement for any professional sport league for that matter. But on top of that, to be a medical doctor on top Mm. is just for me that I I don't know, like, I I don't know how you can achieve that, but obviously you're, you're capable if you're driven. So Mm. he's, uh, he's, big motivator actually so you know if at any point i could get to get the chance to meet a guy like him it'd just be uh it'd just be a, a very interesting and very um i think productive um interaction just to be in, a, in the same space as an individual like that yeah yeah makes you makes you wonder what what the hell you did in your 20s <laughs> <laughs> i know it makes me feel super insecure i'm like oh, oh it took me about seven years to get my bachelor's science but uh, that's normal right i was working on things oh man uh, yeah about it. yeah cool and third question what about coaches who who's a high profile coach that you you like what they're doing or what they've done yeah well that's the thing like i i was I always like Mike Babcock. Uh, mm. He's well, was the coach for the recently Toronto fired Bulls. Mike Babcock. Yep, I know, I know. And the, the only reason why I really like Babcock is that again, super humble guy, and always got results. No matter mm. where he was, always got results. And he just seems like the consummate professional. Now, why he got turfed in Toronto, I don't know. I I, mm. I don't know the politics there. Mm. Um, but he's definitely somebody that uh, has always kind of popped up as like uh, if there was a hockey coach that I really um, respected, um, it was him. You know. Um, so and now like in the in the sphere, I guess of like the online personal training, personal training uh, type worlds, like mm. Kelly Starrett would have to be my like. He's he's like I guess a guru right now if you want to call him that I'm sure he'd cringe at the at the thought of being called that but he'd prefer K Star he'd prefer K Star exactly <laughs> I actually when I was talking to him I I didn't mention Doctor Kelly Starrett and then, then I got like self conscious I'm like oh I should have called him Doctor because I know how some people are like super yeah, yeah. super uh, I guess um, uptight about well you know that's Doctor but he's not like that right he's yeah. super like yeah, I had chill. Nick Nick Winkleman on. Um, He's the head of uh, performance for Irish Rugby Football Union. And um, I introduced him as Dr. Nicholas Winkleman. He goes, oh, you sound like my mom. Because <laughs> he's like, he's the same. He just was like, I'm Nick, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, definitely uh, Kelly Strebb would definitely be like in the high performance category, yeah. especially in like the, 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 the training uh, domain. He's, he's got to be the one. 
Cool, cool. And last question, because it sounds like you got your hands full with uh, with Olivia. Um, sure. What about what about someone in the grassroots who's out there doing doing some good stuff and needs a shout out? Um, well, I, I don't mean to sound corny, but man, what you're doing is pretty freaking <laughs> wicked. Um, like, like you're the inspiration for the, my podcast. Um, and Thanks, just have, yeah. And just having been able to watch you coach and throwing in like all your, your little things that, cause you're, you're, you're doing research-based coaching. Like you're, it's evidence-based. So with that being said, like, you know, you're on the field, you're taking notes, like you're, uh, you're, you're making little games for the guys to play while they're, they're on the field. All those things, man, uh, like I, I've taken notice of them. Like I haven't had a team for a little while, but it's all stuff that I definitely love to implement. So like what you're doing and with the, the junior stuff and everything like that, I think it's awesome. So I think it's going to I think it's going to really be uh, beneficial, not just like for your coaching abilities, but just everybody that has been an athlete with you. Um, you know, they, they got like a top tier coach um, for that brief period that they're with you. And I think it's going to be very beneficial. Awesome, man. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, great having a chat with you. We'll have to go person to person next time and uh, have a beer and uh, talk coaching, talk business, and uh, see where it ends. Hands down, buddy. It's been a pleasure having, uh, having me on. And uh, yeah, good luck with the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. And uh, if we can do a shameless plug for the Canadian Podcaster Federation, of, uh, of which we are both members if you guys are a Canadian podcaster and want just a, a fun little Facebook group to hang out and learn new things about podcasting, I know both of us are in it and be uh, great to have you in there too. Awesome. Cool. Great chat. All right, buddy. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. enjoyed the show please leave a review via itunes and keep listening for the next episode you can also follow us via twitter at rugby coaches cnr or via the website the rugby coaches until next time keep sharing ideas to make the game better